0: Okay, why don't we get started? Uh, my name is John Mueller. I'm a senior fellow here at Cato, and uh, also a political scientist at Ohio State University. Um, we're dealing with, I think, an extremely important foreign policy issue today. Uh, the uh, Islamic State, ISIS or ISIL, uh, sort of burst onto the scene in 2014 uh, with the capture of Mosul. It was, as far as I know, a fairly um, uh, less than an overwhelmingly impressive military achievement in the sense that as soon as they showed up, the Iraqi army, which outnumbered them, substantially vanished. Uh, they weren't actually planning, I understand, to take over the city itself. But since that time, and somewhat before, but particularly after, uh, they spread really quite extensively uh, within, uh, within uh, Iraq and within Syria. And so unlike many other organizations who are frequently referred to as terrorist organizations, uh, this one uh, actually wants to really establish a state, as its name suggests, a, a place that can be governed and uh, run from and also um, expanded potentially uh, to a, to this caliphate that they, they hope for. Uh, it's entered American politics very much, as you can sort of see from the numbers behind me. Uh, public opinion, uh, when Mosul fell, was overwhelmingly opposed to sending troops because it looked like... The Iraqis had just fallen again into some sort of civil war. Uh, that and about 17% of the people were willing to send troops to deal with it, American troops, ground troops. Uh, however, with the beheadings that took place a few months later in August and September 2014, that moved up yeah. to moved up to basically 50% or so, and it's basically still held at that level. Um, the sort of what I consider to be a rather shocking number is the one that's on the wall here. Uh, this is this is maybe slightly biased in the sense it was the poll was conducted just a month after after the Brussels attack, uh, and, but the issue is uh, the question is really quite blunt and straightforward and clear to understand. Do you see that these Islam- Islamic military you consider them a serious threat to the existence or the survival of the United States? Uh, one of the things that's interesting about this is that uh, President Obama, beginning in, in January two thousand fifteen, a year and a half ago, pretty much. Uh, actually, um, uh, uh, specifically, and repeatedly, has said it's not a, a is exi- not a existential threat to the United States, to its existence or its survival. As you can see, he's very soundly lost that argument. Um, so, from a political standpoint, it's not clear, you know, how you want to handle this. Um, uh, Obama want- apparently wants to move even further to dis- to downgrade it somewhat, uh, but has been. Persuaded by his aides not to do so so it's a very important political issue in that sense And the numbers here are really sort of startlingly high in the sense that people are really worried There's one case that came my colleague Benjamin Friedman found in which um, a woman in Illinois uh, Was told on, on the telephone that the Reverend ice and his wife were gonna come to her church she got very alarmed and called up the sheriff and said the Isis are coming to my church um, so, that, so what it does is struck this incredibly responsive chord, in many cases as much as 9-11, even though what triggered it initially was a handful of uh, brutal and cruel and televised um, uh, beheadings. Nothing is obviously as massive as um, of Americans, of course, uh, nothing as massive as 9-11. Okay, so one of the key issues, it seems to me, is basically, can this Islamic State be sustainable, from, and if so, for how long, and so forth. Uh, they, they've lost a fair amount of territory uh, starting as early as 2014 and continuing. Um, the number of recruits interested in going seems to be, according to James Comey of the FBI, seems to be very much down, very strongly down over the last six months. Maybe that's a trend, maybe it isn't. Uh, but the issue basically, the fundamental issue, the bottom-up issue is, can this thing actually function, and for how long? Uh, we're fortunate to have two extremely uh, uh, good people to talk about this. Uh, one is Howard Schatz, um, who is a senior economist at the Rand Corporation, uh, professor of the party Rand uh, Graduate School and director of the Rand Initiated Research at the Rand Corporation, and the other is Jacob Shapiro, uh, who's associate professor, uh, soon to be full professor in the- few weeks uh, in Princeton at the politics and international in the Department of Politics and International Affairs and he's also co-director there of the empirical studies of conflict project Uh, they have just come out with a report a book uh, which is there's some flyers out there if you didn't pick one up called the foundations of the Islamic State uh, looking basically at the things they're talking about today except for the period from 2005 to 2010 So they'll give you background for this. Uh, Today, presumably, they're starting to work on a sequel, uh, which will bring it up to date, and we look forward very much to getting that. The book can be downloaded uh, free, I guess, and also purchased on the RAND website, which is simply rand.org. So uh, the procedure here is um, we're gonna ask uh, Howard Schatz to speak first and then uh, Jake Shapiro, each maybe 25 minutes or so. Um, And it's really to get a real discussion of this going. I've asked them to, if they disagree with people who they think are generally pretty sharp people, uh, we should get some sense of a range of what opinion on this has been. They both worked on this uh, 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 assiduously and are, uh, um, you know, extremely qualified to talk about it. And it'd be good to get sort of a a feel for not only what they think, and they're going to agree and disagree on some aspects, I think. Uh, but also sort of the range of opinion of uh, serious people who have been studying this because it is a very important foreign policy uh, (coughs) concern. Uh, Obama has promised to degrade and ultimately destroy, ultimately suggesting it might take a while, (coughs) ISIS. And so one of the issues will be what are the prospects for that. Um, The only other thing I have to say is that uh, yeah, we'll be finishing at 5.30 and then there will be a reception in the... uh, just you know, by the front door there, uh, where you came in, uh, the, uh, which uh, will have food and uh, beer and wine, and you can uh, engage these people individually. So we'll, t- we'll uh, have them talk for about 50 minutes. I'll ask a few questions, and then we'll open up to the audience and uh, get some light on this extremely important issue. Howard.
1: Thanks very much, John, uh, both for the introduction and for inviting me to speak here. Um, And it's a real pleasure to to be here with uh, Jake as well. As John said, we just finished a report, a book, uh, that we've worked on for quite some time. uh, And I think we're both very relieved to see it out. So as John said, the group that calls itself the Islamic State really became known to most people in June 2014 when it conquered Mosul. But it's been in Iraq and in the Middle East quite a long time. And what I want to do in my 25 minutes is you first some some background about the group so that we all understand who these people are and what they've been doing i'll talk about how they've been operating for more than a decade with the same basic structure same philosophy same goals and really same bureaucracy and same management they've been rational about their administration they've been careful about their spending they've been diversified in their revenue sources and we see they have this tremendous continuity and this tremendous ability to survive under great pressure to remain and to regenerate as they have. so I'll I'll do that too. And then I'll I'll talk to you about its current operations and its current sustainability. And in case anybody has to run out, I'll say that uh, my view is that without outside military pressure, so we're seeing some of that now, But without outside military pressure, I think what they call the caliphate is sustainable for any period of time we care about. And that in the longer run, without better law enforcement, local law enforcement, intelligence, and a political accommodation among the major players, they can be there almost indefinitely. At least as long as their leadership can recruit and field a membership. Uh, Because we've seen in the past that even after a loss of territory, they will continue to remain in place and then to infiltrate and to assassinate and to terrorize uh, to a great extent many different places. So let me start with their history. They really have their origins in in Jordan with a uh, terrorist named Abu Musab al-Zarqawi, who uh, was part of a group there, uh, went and got training in Afghanistan, and then came into Iraq around 2002. And in 2004, he swore allegiance to Al-Qaeda, and that was the start of Al-Qaeda in Iraq. They never called themselves Al-Qaeda in Iraq. They were Al-Qaeda in the land of the two rivers uh, and, and one other variation of that, but they came to be what we called Al-Qaeda in Iraq. Even, even at that time, there was discussion between Zarqawi and uh, Al-Qaeda in Afghanistan and then in Pakistan about an Islamic state. Right? Now, a coalition airstrike killed Zarqawi in 2006 But two new leaders emerged, uh, one of whom was an Egyptian, one of whom uh, was an Iraqi. For some period, we didn't know whether this person actually existed, but it turns out he did exist. And some people say he was quite effective. In 2006, they declared the Islamic State of Iraq. So what we see today really is an outgrowth of what is now 10 years old. These two leaders were again killed in a coalition operation in 2010, and this is when the current leadership emerged, in particular Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, who was a veteran not only of the group, but also of a prison camp that, uh, that the US and the coalition maintained called Camp Buka, where many of their members were imprisoned for a time. Uh, Baghdadi moved forces uh, clandestinely into Syria in 2011, and that was the core of what is now known as uh, Jabhat al Nusra, which is the official Al Qaeda affiliate in Syria. Jabhat al Nusra and Baghdadi split in 2013. Uh, the Islamic State of Iraq overtly moved into Syria, declared itself the Islamic State of Iraq and Syria, or of the Levant, or of Al Sham. And then in 2014, uh, after taking over Mosul and many other cities, declared itself the Islamic State. Uh, I and others at RAND have been looking at this group since about 2007. Jake has been looking at them for a long time, too. And so we've been looking at them mostly using their documents. Uh, We recover their documents on the battlefield. And they're quite assiduous about record keeping. And you can learn a lot not only about their operations, but about their personnel. Uh, and, and how and their reporting requirements as well. And, and so what we've done, what a lot of what I'll say about their past is based on their personal rosters, their financial records, their correspondence, their expense reports, revenue spreadsheets, organization charts. Let's start with, with their overall organization. and you'll see there's tremendous continuity, and I'll keep coming back to this. This group has not gone away, and this group is not new. Their top level looked a lot like al-Qaeda's top level. And this makes sense because Zarqawi trained in Afghanistan, and this actually may be the optimal way to organize a terrorist group. But what they then did with this kind of structure of a leader and of department heads, a military head, an intelligence head, an administrative head, what they then did was they then replicated that at lower geographic levels. So unlike al-Qaeda, they went from the start uh, to organize themselves to govern territory, and we saw this in Anbar Province in Iraq. Uh, this is the largely Sunni province that borders Syria and Jordan. We saw that there was an overall provincial emir, that's their leader, and then we saw they had divided Anbar into six sectors, and each sector had an emir also. And in the province, there were emirs with each with specialties, and in each sector there were emirs with specialties as well. Uh, these emirs proliferated at one point. Anbar, uh, the Euphrates River runs through Anbar, so one sector we looked at had an emir of boats. Apparently he was responsible for procuring and repairing all the boats they used. Uh, but that was a case of, we think, a hyper-specialization, which they corrected from. Uh, we, also, we also learned that at least by 2008, and probably earlier, they had already subdivided Iraq into 31 different sectors. And they these sectors were largely what you see them controlling today. Or certainly, if you look at maps of their control at their peak power in 2014, and you looked at the areas in Iraq where where the Islamic State had people or had taken control of cities, these were the areas they had marked on uh, on their written description of their sectors from two thousand eight or before. And for each sector, they defined what the leadership would be. So there would be an overall emir, there would be uh, an Islamic law emir, there would be a military emir, so Islamic law to govern the group and to govern to set the rules for the area, military to continue the fight. And for each sector, they also designated that there should be a media emir. So again, right, the continuity that I'll keep talking about, we know them today from their videos, from their beheading videos, from their their videos of their their troops with the black flag in armored vehicles or in trucks driving down the streets of Raqqa or of, of Mosul. This is not new for them. Media was extremely important to them as early as 2008 and even before that. And and we also see from their documents that they listed whether these positions were filled or not. Now, 2008, uh, the coalition was conducting a withering campaign against them. And we were, in particular, targeting media emirs. And for these 30 sectors, we have data for 30 sectors, uh, no media emir positions were filled. So there was some effective, uh, our operations were effective in cutting off their leadership. But if we go back and think about the committee structure, they were very good at bringing new people in when top leaders were eliminated. So that's their organizational structure and their territorial control. We also looked at their human capital, uh, their, their personnel policies. okay, And uh, we had data on skills and on nationality. And what we found was they were very rational about how they allocated people. So uh, the suicide bombers were almost, in in our data work, were all foreigners. Because the foreigners, they were the true believers. They had to actually make an effort to join this group. The people who did intelligence and security, the people who really needed local knowledge, the people who uh, did extortion operations against businesses, they were all Iraqis. And again, don't forget, ISIL, the Islamic State, is in Syria and Iraq, but we're dealing with Iraq now. Um, They were all Iraqis because foreigners stick out, right? And if you're doing intel or you're doing security, you don't want to stick out. What we also found, and this is quite relevant to today, most of the foreigners were in administrative or military roles, right? So it wasn't just that foreigners were suicide bombers. Foreigners were coming, and they were strongly involved in the fight and in running the organization, much as we see today, We also uh, found salary data. So I'll give you kind of real time, how do, we, how do we judge the group today when all we know about is the group from yesterday? Is the group doing anything different? You remember, so first of all, they did pay salaries. They paid salaries then, they pay salaries now. And when ISIL took over in 2014, maybe in 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 accord with this view that you know, they were a danger to the United States, There were all kinds of reports that they're paying people $1,000 a month, they're paying $400 a month, and this just didn't make any sense to us. Because what we found was they had a pretty set salary schedule, and they were paying people, fighters, about $40 a month, sometimes $50. You get money for each wife, you get money for each child, each dependent parent, each unmarried sister. And so when we finally started getting data about their salaries now, we found something very similar. So Abu Hajar, one of, their, uh, one of their top leaders, was captured, and he came out in the media and said, well, actually, we're paying fighters about $65 and then about half that for each wife and child, and we're not paying foreigners anything. So this really wipes away the $1,000 per fighter. What we now know as well is that Their salary schedule, at least as of December of 2015, or or January, around there, was $50 a fighter, $35 a wife, I'm sorry, yeah, $50 a wife, $35 a child, uh, $50 for what they call a sabaya, which is uh, a sex slave, one of the the Yazidi women that they captured and then sold, $35 for a child by a sex slave. So... So, so really, um, the salaries now are very similar to the salaries then. They tend to be low and flat. There is some differentiation now, depending on uh, skill. But most people make this low, flat salary. They sometimes also paid rent, sometimes provided food, other, other benefits. Uh, now we get to the fundraising. And uh, I'll say continuity once again. What were they doing in 2004, 2005? Well, they were extorting businesses. They were raising, first of all, the continuity is they raise money internally, right? So in 2014, we, were started, to get, we started to get a lot of questions, how do we stop money flowing from the Gulf to uh, this Islamic State? And our answer was, well, you don't because they're not getting a lot of money from the Gulf. Right? They are raising money internally many different ways. What did they do, 2004, 2005, in Anbar province, uh, selling stolen cars, uh, stealing money from Shia, uh, selling other stolen goods? 2007, uh, Al-Qaeda in Iraq, Islamic State of Iraq, running, running a racket out of the Beji uh, refinery, which is a refinery in Iraq north of Baghdad. Um, and what would they make, the estimates they made about a billion dollars, all insurgents made, I think, about uh, about a billion dollars over the course of, of two years. This was not just al-Qaeda in Iraq. What did we find in 2009, 2010 in Mosul? Well, they were making deals with the government so that they would get a certain percentage of construction contracts, right? And they were stealing uh, uh, real estate deeds and reselling them. So you know, much like a criminal organization, the big change now is that a lot of that had to be done clandestinely. Now they have territory. So they have many different uh, avenues of raising money. And I'll get to that when I talk more about the group today. We also saw, uh, and they do this today, we saw that they reallocated money within provinces and across provinces. So each province that raised money would send 20% to the center. When you read about them today, you'll find something about the general treasury or the Beit al-Mal. This existed for quite a long time, 20% up to the up to Mosul, which is where it was 2008 through 2010. And then Mosul headquarters would reallocate, which they're doing now. And so we would see money would go from Baghdad up to Mosul, and Mosul would then send money back to Baghdad to fund operations. So a very centralized very uh, concerned about how they manage their money. Right. So let me talk about ISIL today. and I'm going to talk about them in, in two different uh, two, two different periods. One is before the operation that's known as Tidal Wave 2, and the other is after the operation known as Tidal Wave 2. So, so Tidal Wave 2 is an operation that the coalition started running around October, and it was a much more intensive bombardment Of their oil facilities and uh, their cash storage houses and it's been having some effect I'll get to that before that period 2014 to uh, to late 2015 what did they have well they stole a lot of money from banks right estimates really vary we can say if we want to be conservative we can say between 500 million and a billion dollars okay they were making uh, 40 million dollars a month from oil at least through February 2015, and probably longer after that. They were making money from gas deals with Syria. The uh, Islamic State controls most of the oil and gas in Syria. They were selling the gas or shipping the gas to generating plants for the Assad regime. And in return, uh, they were getting much of that electricity. And they were also getting money and employees to, to take care of the gas plants. They also had other resources. They had a phosphate mine in Iraq. They had manufacturing plants in Al Qaim in Iraq. Until the summer of 2015, the Iraqi government was paying salaries to its employees who lived in Islamic State territory, and the Islamic State was skimming those salaries as well. We don't know how much it was making. Uh, You know, it could be 20 million, have been some reports, hundreds of millions have been other reports. They were making some money kidnapped for ransom. Uh, those reports have been 20 to 45 million in 2014. Again, really, really sh- shaky numbers here. And then, um, and then artifacts, antiquities, okay? So, um, And again, there, is it 10 million or is it 100 million? We, we don't really know. Right? So now, now we get to what happened after tidal wave two. Well, if we if the the United States government Treasury has been quite forthcoming about uh, about data that they have been collecting, and so I take them at their word when they say that ISIL is probably making about 250 million a year from oil today, and about 360 million a year from taxation. So that's about 50 million dollars a month. Right. Now, I should, I should add, so Tidal Wave 2, what happened? Why are they making so much less? Well, we destroyed oil trucks. That's the only way to move oil there. We destroyed uh, major oil facilities, which they can rebuild, but it takes time. And we blew up cash storage houses. Right? So they're, they're financially a bit more constrained now. Um, I should add that that estimate of $50 million a month is trustworthy, but... But the Wall Street Journal at the end of April reported that ISIL is still making almost a million dollars a day from oil, right? And that was largely unsourced, but you know very credible reporters, incredible newspaper. The New York Times reported uh, recently, I think it was December, that they were making on the order of 800 to 900 million from taxation schemes. So you know let's go let's be conservative, let's go with Treasury 50 million a month, okay. Now, I'll go into a lot of their revenue raising, but now let me give you a first hint about why I think this is sustainable for a while. If they're making 50 million a month, we know they're kind of. They're, we know I told you their salary <coughs> schedule, right? Let's assume that, that each of their members, and this is very conservative, let's assume each of their members has one wife, three children, one sex slave, and one child by that sex slave. On their salary schedule, that's $290 a month. For that family all right you give me you give me fifty thousand fighters which is probably more than they have that's 14 and a half million a month so you can see the imbalance they're they're pulling in according to treasury 50 million a month their personnel costs are 15 million a month that gives them a lot of extra money to buy munitions to do social services if they want to repair buy oil equipment repair their fields you know, are they spending some of their reserves from the banks? Maybe, maybe their budget is higher than fifty million a month. We don't know, but it seems to me that they have a cushion. So, so now we look at revenue. One of the big puzzles we're puzzling about this. We don't we don't understand quite how this works. They are taxing people in their uh, in their territory, and I think. Jake will give a very good presentation about why ultimately this will lead them, you know, to to ruin because it, ultimately you just keep taxing the same people if markets are closing, if the economy is bad, people are going to run out of money. So we've really been trying to think how how is this sustainable? How can how are they getting money from outside? So let me go through their various sources of revenue without dollar totals, but at least suggest why this could be Sustainable for some time without more action against them. So antiquities—that's certainly sustainable. Everywhere you go in Iraq and Syria, you can find antiquities, and you can sell them on the international market for something. They have a very diversified tax structure. Some of that's going to some of that's going to run out, right? So an example of some of their taxes—you uh, know—they wanted to tax students one time in Hawija, Iraq. For textbooks, well, you can only tax students so many times until they run out of money, right? They charge in in Mosul. They were charging shopkeepers uh, two thousand five hundred a year uh, for rent in one of their buildings. Sixty shopkeepers, two thousand five hundred a year. You know, that's not a lot of money, but it's it's money. You can do something with that. Uh, They were charging 750 dinars, Iraqi dinars, that's about 50 to 75 cents to park in the parking lots they control in Mosul, So they have all these different local sources of revenue, some sustainable, some not. Uh, But we do know that people who live in their territory are getting remittances from outside, family members. Again, the value of those remittances, we really don't know, right? They're charging, and this is a very sustainable source, they're charging transit taxes on trucks that pass through their territory. Why would trucks pass through their territory? Well, because in Syria, wheat grain is grown in the east outside of their territory and in their territory. And people live in the west. And so you need to truck that grain through ISIL territory to the west. At the same time, in the west, vegetables and fruit are grown as well as pharmaceuticals are manufactured. You need to truck those through ISIL territory to the Kurds and others who live in the east. So they're getting transit taxes. What are they getting? Reports vary. $300 a truck, $1,000 a truck, $1,700 a truck. And this is all money, as long as it's just passed through, coming to them from outside. And Those estimates, by the way, in January 2016, it was estimated they were getting $140 million a year from this trade. No way to verify that. Um, They also own considerable resources. So they have a lot of Syrian cotton production, which can be sold outside of their territory. They have uh, cement factories, flour factories, asphalt factories, uh, canned food, uh, water bottling, textiles. So the puzzle is, are they selling it outside their territory? My my educated guess is probably. These are long-established trade routes. People are willing to buy and sell and long-established smuggling routes as well. And finally, the other part of the puzzle is they can control their expenses. Uh, The news reports are that they cut their salaries in half. Uh, We have seen them historically vary their salary payments. They'll delay salaries. They'll cut expenses other ways. So so if they lose revenue, they can go on for some time. what does this? What does this mean for for taking care of them? Uh, I guess the the punchline I would I would come to is we do have military activity against them, and the plan is to uh, build up that military activity, mostly using local forces. Eventually, root them out of Mosul, root them out of their Iraqi capital, root them out of Raqqa, their capital of, of their entire caliphate, and. And and that's really, I think, the right way to do this. Uh, We would also need to stop their deals with the Assad government in Syria, uh, although that's going to be much harder to do. And the reason that this military pressure is important is because for the time we care about, as long as they have this caliphate, as long as they're able to operate, uh, they will cause misery to the people who live in their caliphate. Uh, Whether that's in the U.S. interest to care about is uh, individual preference. They will be able to carry out mass casualty casualty attacks outside their territory, as they have this week in Baghdad, 200 people killed so far. And they will continue to host uh, foreign fighters who can then be deployed, host and train foreign fighters who can then be deployed back to Europe, uh, less likely to the United States, more likely back to Europe to cause harm to our allies. I would say there's, there's one other point, though, in that, and, and this, this is kind of a caution. This is what makes the problem much harder for the long term. I said at the beginning that they were very good at remaining and regenerating. We know from, from the terrific work of, of, of Craig Whiteside and from other work that they really are quite systematic when they're on the ropes, when they're underground. They're quite systematic about how to retake territory, right? It's a pretty coherent plan. They will infiltrate a town. They will assassinate representatives of the legitimate government, be it policemen or government officials. They will make connections, social connections with town leaders. They will make connections with the mosques and then they will move in militarily. And this, to combat that will really take much better law enforcement in Iraq and Syria, much better intelligence about their operations so the trust of the population to, to inform on them And then a political accommodation. As long as there are populations in Syria and Iraq who view the Islamic State as a better option than the governments in Baghdad or Damascus, the Islamic State will have staying power in one form or another. If not as a state with territory, then as a clandestine terrorist group that can cause a tremendous amount of damage. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, John.
2: Um, okay, so I want to, uh, I want to thank Howard, um, for, for, for some great background and, um, and, and, uh, you know, before I start, I just want to highlight the organizational form that Howard described for you of this group. That is a classic M form organization, right? This is an industrial, uh, industrial age way of organizing a firm that has been ported to managing, uh, this government. So this is. This is very familiar to how humans have organized for a while. And so I want to offer some thoughts today on the sustainability of Daesh. And I want to start by saying my remarks here are about the sustainability of the group as a territory-holding bureaucratic organization. And when I say sustainability, I'm thinking of kind of out beyond a three-year time frame and not thinking of the group as being able to go to ground again and then regenerate but as being able to manage uh, the territory it now holds or some significant portion thereof. And so I'm gonna kind of talk about two things. I'm gonna first talk about why it's hard to understand and think about the general economics of the group. I'm gonna pose that to you as a bit of a sampling problem. And then I'm gonna talk a little bit about where could we get in terms of thinking about the group's sustainability or where could we have gotten in late 2014, early 2015 by doing some simple multiplication and comparing estimates at the time to what were the pre-war realities in the territory the group controlled at the time. So those will be the the two things we'll talk about. So um, the the first work I want to highlight, which is, you should think about this as a demonstration of why it's hard to understand, is work I've been doing with uh, Keith twon Do at the World Bank and Chris Elvidge at NOAA, thinking about the group's oil revenues. And we were inspired to do this because we started looking at uh, oil revenues and estimates of oil revenues that were being put up in 2014 and early 2015, and we saw a great deal of contradiction, right? So this is an example uh, from congressional testimony in November 2014, um, and uh, this is kind of the opposite claim being made by the Financial Action Task Force, which is an international anti-money laundering body, in February 2015. So just a few months later, right? So the first quote says, there's sustainable oil income. It's significant, $3 million a day. And the second one says, yes, but they're not going to be able to sustain. And so we wanted to know, uh, basically, which of these is kind of the right answer. And, and so what we did is uh, we looked at Iraq and Syria. So this is just, a, obviously, a map of Iraq and Syria. And then what we did is, in both countries, let's see if this is working here, there we go. Uh, it doesn't seem to show up on the screen, though. But so each of those uh, little triangles is an oil field. Uh, And at each field, we can, using remote sensing satellite imagery from a satellite that's up in polar orbit, look for each field at what the heat is that's being produced at that field, right, what the temperature is that's implied by that of the things that are flaring, and how much light there is at night. So we can basically tell, are you burning the methane gas that comes up when you produce oil, and at night, are there lights on, right? As there are in any industrial facility operating at night, and we can even—and I'll show you a picture of this with the satellites—measure low levels of heat that are consistent with informal refining, right? And um, and you know, so we did a simple thing. We said, okay, let's classify each of these flaring sites as either being under dash control at a particular point in time or not, and then uh, and then see how much oil it was being produced. Now, I want to say in doing this, it's important to keep in mind that in all these fields, the default standard practice at the start of 2014 was to flare off the methane gas that comes up with production. You don't have to do that. It's not a critical safety hazard to produce without flaring the gas. But that was the standard default setting, and it took a real act of kind of going in and intentionally reengineering the way the, the fields were producing to turn that off. Okay, so so with that in mind, let me show you quickly why we're able to estimate oil revenues. So what what we've done here is for each of the fields uh, in Iraq and for total production in Syria in 2012, 2013, and 2014, we've just plotted the log of the oil output in millions of barrels over the course of the year against the average radiant heat produced at that location over the course of the year. And what this plot shows you is that there's some noise to the relationship. But in general, if you want to predict before the conflict got started, where the oil was being produced, a pretty good thing you could do is look at how hot and how much energy was coming out of that field. It's not perfect, but it's not bad. So of course, the data are much more granular than that. And so let me show you some specific fields. OK, so, so, so these are actually three, uh, three different fields and let me just walk you through what's here, and I apologize for walking away from the plot, but I like to gesture, so I'll be loud. Okay, um, so the top plot is what's called uh, M10 band. And this is the band that you use to measure the heat of a light source. And it basically uses some basic physics relationships to infer from the nature of the light coming into the sensor, how hot the thing is. And it gives you a measure of how much light is coming in at that light. So. The blue on the top is just, is there any detection at all in the M10 band? The green, the second column, is showing you what's the inferred temperature. And this is important because methane gas burns at around 1,710 degrees Kelvin. All right. And so if you have things down around 1,300 Kelvin, that's like informal refining. And anything that's kind of above it, so above that green line, that's methane gas being cleared. And then what we have here in the day-night band is this is just after we've subtracted out lunar illumination, how bright is that piece of the Earth at night? And so what you see there in, uh, in, in the Agile field is this is a field uh, that was taken from Daesh, taken by Daesh in August 2014. And you might notice there that in August 2014, the amount of illumination at the site dropped significantly as does the rate of M10 detections and the temperature produced at that field. But there's still production going on. And then it falls off for a short period. And this spike in uh, early, late March, early April 2015 coincides exactly with the Iraqi army offensive to retake this field. And so you see they come back. And one thing Daesh did as they were were retreating is they set fire to a number of the wells and you pick that up exactly. And then the fires are extinguished, and you see no flaring activity for a long time, but lights on at night. And that's the effort to fix and repair the damage to the field, and then it starts producing again. Okay? So that's one example of the kind of pattern we see. The Jafra field is a field in Syria that Daesh takes in fall 2014. You'll notice production at this field stops almost a year earlier. And all that's going on at that field, there's maybe some informal refining, some cars driving around at night, whatnot. But by spring 2014, all you see is the lunar cycle. Okay, this is just the the moon getting full and going down. And the sensors are so sensitive that you can pick that up. So Jafra, there's basically no production during the period when Dinch controls it. And this was not a tiny field. This was a field that had meaningful oil production. And they clearly did not have the personnel to restart production. This last field, Tok Tok, is a field uh, in the Kurdish areas of Iraq where there's normal production throughout. And you basically see the M10 detections are kind of moving up and down. The temperature is consistently around 1,700 Kelvin. And the lights are on at night all the time. So that's kind of normal oil production. In Iraq and Syria. And so what we can do is we can take that calibration where we said for these fields uh, how much do we think is produced given how hot the fields are and we can uh, do some production estimates. And so this is just showing you the production estimates in billions of barrels of in, uh, in barrels of oil per day, thousands of barrels per, of oil per day in day territory under two different assumptions. So on the left we've assumed that when there's no light, there's no production. On the right, we've assumed that when there's no temperature detection, but there are lights on at night, they're producing at the rolling average of production over the previous periods where we actually detected temperature. So that's like saying they've shut off the flare for some reason, but the oil is still coming out of the ground. And then in the bottom panel, all we've done is we've just multiplied these by different estimates of how much revenue Daesh is able to get for every barrel of oil that's produced. So the top dotted line, that's the simple assumption that they're getting basically the full value of the oil. So they're paying nothing to maintain their revenue, and they're selling at the world market price. Now, that's clearly inconsistent with all the reporting on the topic. Reports of the discount they take on world market prices ranged from 20% of world market price to about 60 or 65%. So if we apply half the world market price, seems not a crazy swag. They produced a million dollars a month in oil revenue only into the fall 2014. And then production started to drop and revenue started to drop. And if we assume just a kind of $25 per barrel fixed price, so that would have been 25% of the world market price uh, at the start of their their advance and then drop declining thereafter, they're making maybe uh, $500,000 500, a month from oil. Uh, uh, sorry, $500,000 uh, per day from oil thereafter. Now, uh, what I want to highlight in this right, is the numbers when we assume venting look not bad. Right? Uh, $500,000 per day is still $150 million uh, a year. That's not, that's not a bad number. Um, that's an extremely generous estimate because there we're assuming that whenever we see any bit of light at the site but no heat, they're producing at the rate they were when we saw lights and heat, All right? So that's assuming basically no degradation of the infrastructure. So a question that comes up from this is why does this look so different than a lot of the public estimates that are out there? And the way I want to encourage you to think about or, or at least the way we interpret this is that When an intrepid reporter, so someone like Erica Solomon of the Financial Times, goes out and spends months developing sources in Iraq and Syria to understand oil revenue, she can do this at most for one or two sites. She can't feasibly, in the time a human being has, go and find engineers who are working at 30 different sites and draw a representative sample of the sites. And so you get the standard sampling problem you have in any situation where you only get to see a little bit of the world. And if you infer what the rest of the world looks like from that little piece of the world, you're going to make mistakes. And so what we did here is basically we took a census of oil production using the remote sensor. So um, this can be, you know, you can take this a lot of different ways. But I think the right way to interpret this is to just say, look, this is why it's hard to understand what's going on because the standard toolkit that we have can't take a representative sample of any of the quantities of interest. Even the captured documents don't give us that, right? We maybe get one administrative AMIR at one point in time, and then we have to assume that the others are working in the same way, and we never know that they are. Okay. So that's the first half of what I wanted to talk about. Second thing I wanted to talk about was think about the sustainability of the group uh, for the long run, and, and here again, Uh, To minimize disagreement with my co-author, we have slightly different definitions of sustainability. Uh, I'm thinking over a slightly longer time frame and limited to uh, the control of substantial territory. Okay. Uh, So the first point I want to make, if you think about sustainability of the group, um, uh, is basically they're fighting a three-front war. Right? They have the Syrian government forces supported by Russia and other rebels uh, on their western flank, They have the Kurds, supported by the US on their northern flank. And they have the Iraqi government, supported by the US on their eastern flank. And uh, over time, since their initial success, they've been steadily losing territory. Now, the territory they're losing is the territory those other entities care about. So if you look at a map of the territory that Daesh now controls, there's a lot of that that no one else wants to run. It is a notably rebellious, difficult-to-control population that produces not that much in tax revenue. So it's not clear that, you know, to to be colloquial about it, it's not clear the juice is worth the squeeze for any of the surrounding states. But they're fighting a three-front war, and that takes a lot of money. Uh, The second thing to point out is that whenever you get these nice document dumps, a lot of the production claims or revenue claims don't match up. Uh, So this is just a a document uh, that was picked up and and released on the website of uh, Ayman al-Tamimi uh, that was produced in uh, December 2014, January 2015, and it showed revenue under various categories for the area of the group uh, that the group controlled around Deir Azur that had the largest collection of what were pre-war the most productive fields. And what I want to draw your attention to is that for the month, Right? They're getting production from that set of fields of about two million dollars. And this represented well more than five percent of the oil assets they had based on pre-war production. So at the time, people were citing oil revenues you know of 50, 60 uh, you know 100 millions of dollars a year and that just doesn't match up here. okay uh, So the last thing I want to do uh, here is... Let's ask what we have to do to rationalize the group's income. And so, in the first row of this table, what I've done is I've said, let's take the range of population that was in the area they controlled in early 2015 before the war. So, this is how many people lived there before the war, which we can measure very well with remote sensing and uh, and a little bit of math and some algorithms. And let's take the pre war GDP of that area. Which, depending on how you measure it, is about four point uh, uh, seven thousand dollars per person uh, per household per year, or sorry, per person per year. Uh, and then let's look at the range of revenue, annual revenue claims for the year. Right. So if you do that, you back out an implied tax rate of between three and seven and a half percent. That is not a state that is administratively competent. Some of the least competent states in the world manage 10, 11, 12, 13% in taxes. The world mean is 17% of GDP. So if you believe that the population hasn't changed that much, and you believe the economy hasn't changed that much, and you believe the revenue claims, then you have to have believed that in early 2014, the Islamic State could not tax competently. So the next row says, let's assume large population movements, but per capita GDP consistent with pre-war levels, claimed revenue is right, and they can tax as well as the average state in the world. Well, then you come up with massive population movements, right? You come up with a feasible population in the territory that pre-war held between 2.8 and 5.3 million of maximum 1.3 million people. That's a stunning statement about the quality of governance under the group. That means basically two-thirds to three-quarters of the population has to have fled if you want to maintain those other numbers. And so then the last row just asks, let's hold population in its pre-war range and assume they hit the world mean in taxation. What's happened to their tax rates if those revenue claims were correct? And there you come up with the complete collapse or near complete collapse of the, the economy. And so the point of this exercise is, is, is not to say that, uh, you know, there's something kind of fundamentally wrong uh, with, with the numbers others are coming up with, or even that there's something fundamentally lo- wrong with Howard's statement that the group has diverse revenue sources and is able to use them effectively. The point is that this is at a time when the group was at its peak and you had to to, generi- to rationalize the high-end numbers for its revenue, believe that its economy was collapsing, that its population was fleeing, or that it was administratively incompetent. One of those things or some combination of them had to be true. And if you go back to kind of first principles and what we know about how economies around the world work, that situation will only get worse. If you look across the world, governments that have unpredictable taxation, a great deal of uncertainty surrounding their political future, and poorly thought out regulations, well, guess what? Their economies die over time, right? That's just something you see all around the world. There's the steady immiseration of states with that kind of governance. And so if you think that the uh, Islamic State is going to be able to sustain and not suffer that same fate, you have to ask yourself, well, what's different, right? That requires some claim about why this one is different. And, And I don't know what that would be, right? Potentially it's that there's some minimal level of trade that needs to move through their territory, um, but let's let's take that and say, okay, so uh, sustainable revenue say of 360 million from uh, from transit taxes per year. Well, that sounds like a lot, or even let's grant you know 610 million from the combination of oil production and transit taxes. That sounds like a lot until you realize that that's the total government revenue for a state fighting a three front war where the lowest annual military budget of one of the states it's fighting is roughly $3 billion a year. So you're not going to win that war. Now, you might be able to sustain in territory they don't care about, but you're not going to actually move the front lines with that. And so then you can ask yourself, OK, well, what about some of the numbers out there? You know, What do they translate to in terms of service for the population, which is a necessary component of not at some point having the population rebel? So I, I, this was you know, an unfair prerogative of going second. But I took Howard's uh, number of $15 million per month in personnel costs. And assuming $60 million a month in revenue, that leaves a residual of about $35 million a month to provide services. So let's assume the population they control is something like $2 million now. That's $17 a month per person in public services. You're not going very far to sustain sewage, water, electricity roads, everything you need to like give people any chance of living a kind of reasonably satisfying life on that kind of public service spending. So that's far short of the full accounting that one would like to do, uh, but it's suggestive that there are real long-term problems here. And so then to wrap up, if you take that seriously and you say, okay, I believe all this stuff you've shown me, this thing doesn't look economically sustainable, at least not Uh, modulo significant effort to contain it from the outside. The final logical question is what should be done? What should be done about it? Should you try and actively take efforts to compress its uh, territory and, and, and fight it? Or should you allow it to wither on the vine? And this is where we get into, I think, theology. You have to make some claim about how sensitive the ability of the group is to conduct attacks outside of its area to the extent of territory that the group controls, right? Because if that ability is insensitive to the territory that the group controls, there's no good argument for investing in trying to compress it further, because if you believe what I just told you, it'll fall apart on its own eventually. If, on the other hand, you think that that ability is very sensitive to how much territory it controls, then you have at least an argument for compressing it, right? If you think that having places to screen a population and training centers, and having this ideal that others can look to is critical to generating the terrorist threat outside its territory, then I think you get into a serious argument that balances the costs of reducing its territory uh, against other options. And once you get into that, that leads you to the final question I want to talk about, which is the what's next quandary. Because in the territory that the group now controls, the successors to it are not obviously better. Right? Howard mentioned Jabhat al-Nusra. One thing Jabhat al-Nusra has been doing of late is they've been making a pitch for themselves as the good governance uh, Islamist group. Right? They've been putting out propaganda videos that highlight their governance, their nice treatment of prisoners. Right? They've been trying to position themselves contra the Islamic State as, as a good alternative. And so if that's the successor, right? the smash and leave option is not viable, You're looking at something like Libya, but even worse because you have the transit revenues, right? And so then you start to balance those options against other ones. And that's where you need to think, I think, seriously about what does it take in terms of investments to contain and minimize the cost outside the area? And this is where you kind of logically are led to. If you believe that to the extent that the group is sustainable and the territory controls economically, it's for sure not expandable, and is likely going to be slowly degrading over time.
0: uh, Let me uh, ask a couple questions, and we'll open it up and argue back and forth uh, among you if you want. Um, One of the issues that both of you stress is sort of the importance of people that you can extort. Uh, is a viable strategy of uh, involving containment, but nevertheless, effort to try to get people to leave the country, leave, leave the area. Uh, Howard mentioned that um, the, uh, is in many respects, the, the Islamic State may be better governed than the alternative, which is not Jeffersonian democracy or you know or, or Minneapolis or something, uh, but is um, the uh, um, the Shiite-led uh, Iraqi uh, Iraqi uh, Iraqi state. So the, so it may be that people don't want to leave, but is there some purchase potentially in facilitating using smugglers or whatever people smugglers people to leave uh, those that want to leave? Would that is that is that a possibility? To, so I'd ask both of you whatever you think on that issue.
2: Yeah, I'll, so I'll I'll, I'll I'll say one one word on that, and this is not really on the policy of facilitating departures, but there's a tremendous amount of anecdotal evidence out there that the group is having to coerce people to stay. Right? So during the time period when uh, Iraqi uh, citizens could collect their salaries in Baghdad and then return to Islamic State-held territories, uh, there were um, there was some reporting that in certain areas the thing you had to do to go collect your salary was deposit your deed to your home with the local uh, emir. And you weren't allowed to bring family members with you. Because the fear was that if you could come back to your House, or you could take your family with you, that you wouldn't come back. And there are also kind of reports in the local media uh, every week of entire units of foreigners being executed for cowardice on the battlefield, which uh, one can interpret as groups of people saying, I don't like where this is going, you know, we'd like to go home, and the group uh, not allowing that and generally setting the example that they can't leave. And so if you think that that's representative of the broader problem uh, then it certainly would suggest that what John has in mind is a reasonable thing to attempt.
1: Yeah, uh, I think ca- helping people leave is effectively the same thing as taking away territory, because it takes away their taxing power. And clearly they value people because as 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 Jake said early on, uh, they essentially took hostages with deeds or with families. Um, they at one point, and possibly now, would charge people $1,000 for the right to leave. We know that people are, are trying to escape. Civilians are trying to escape. So, so, so you know, that all would make us expect that they don't want people to leave, precisely because of the taxing uh, authority that they get from them, and also because of the optics. Right? It's not much of an inspiring caliphate if everyone's trying to escape.
0: Is there a way of facilitating that from the outside? could. They, uh, uh, there, there are many opponents, work sort of underhandedly to uh, to to facilitate. It. In that, Mosul, I think they've got like a moat or something like that. People can only go out through one area or something like that.
1: Yeah. So that that's and, that,
0: and so they can't go unless they you know they leave people behind who be killed if they don't come back and so forth.
1: That is a that is a much more difficult policy question because we do know that there are people facilitating. Uh, uh, escapes so there is, there is there is a person or a group of people in the Kurdistan region in Iraq who are facilitating the exfiltration of, of Yazidis, right? Um, what makes this difficult is that we don't know the terms, right? We don't know if it's completely clandestine. We don't know if this is if they're paying some kind of ransom. So uh, so the Islamic State as a profit-maximizing criminal gang. Would surely want to extract money if there were some kind of overt effort to take people out. Covert efforts, um, you know, they have a lot of resistance inside their territory, uh, and so I don't think we're fully aware of whatever covert efforts exist. What we what we do know, what's been reported in the open media, there there is a group in Mosul who is, uh, you know. There are uh, snipers who are killing Islamic State people, so one could imagine that they would also be helping people leave. We don't, we don't know the nature of those efforts. But any overt effort would probably involve payments. And then that's a policy question, right? What's, what's better, to pay them and get people out or to leave people in?
0: Okay, let me ask one question which may... Um moved almost to the Panglossian thing. Uh, one thing neither of you talked about was, and I'd like to, uh, it's a common thing in the press and so forth, I'd like you confirm or, or uh, embellish on it or whatever, uh, is that to a substantial degree, you've got sort of the way you put it was, you, they, they, it's being led by a bunch of pathological types, uh, theologians, uh, but the real running of it is by former Baathists who basically joined up and found a way of getting who had been kicked out because of the Americans in 2003. Now found a way to establish a, a Sunni state in which they ran, uh, in which in which they in which they were more or less on top again, sort of managerial class, I guess you could call it. If that's true, and maybe it isn't, uh, is there a possibility that the Baathist types, who are presumably not terribly ideologically and pathological, could actually do something resembling a coup? Uh, and and therefore become a negotiable with commodity already both Syria because of the sea and and Iraq are basically partitioned effectively in Syria it's, there's a, there's a ceasefire which may or may not work but it's a ceasefire in place so therefore, various people control various chunks of it, and a problem to be worked out over a long period of time, presumably, if, if ever. Um, and in the case of Iraq, obviously the Kurds have a very strong separate area and so forth, and there's Sunni and there's Shiite areas and others. Uh, so, there's, there, so the issue would be that if, if it were no longer a threat or no longer uh, evangelistic about expanding, uh, it might be an entity with which one could seriously negotiate the way you would negotiate with any other, with any other subgroup. Uh, that's maybe a long shot, but is there a possibility? And you may speculate on that issue.
1: Yeah, so you've... If, if you don't mind... Yeah, I'll no. up. So, so you've actually walked into one of the most contentious debates about uh, the leadership of the Islamic State, and that is we do know that a lot of their top leaders are, I will call them former regime elements, and you'll see what side I come down on this, uh, but others will call them bathless. And the issue is are these are these people who fit the 1970s 1980s mold of the secular modernizing bathist who yes was brutal but who let women go to universities uh in skirts in shorter skirts or are these people actually uh very religious and believers in in the mission of the Islamic state so so i tend to come down on the side that they are believers in the mission, and, uh, and again, I said this is contentious, right? There are people who can argue very strongly the other way, but the evidence, there are a number of things that I would point to. One is that the idea of this totally secular bath kind of became outdated in the 1990s when under sanctions and uh, as an effort to control power, Saddam at least started something called the Faith Campaign, and this was an effort to... Have more influence over the mosques, but the mosques ended up having more influence over the bathis who took part, uh, who, who who were part of this. That's the first issue. The second issue is many of these people, including the current leader Abu Bakr al Baghdadi, uh, but but the 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 leader I forget his name, the leader who went into Syria in 2012 to set up the the Islamic State's networks, they joined the organization in 2004 2005, and you couldn't join the organization unless you were a believer in its religious ideology. And you wouldn't want to anyway because there were many other groups there who in 2004 at least were just as powerful and weren't murdering your fellow Iraqis for the point of murdering the fellow Iraqis. So so I think that that these people are in general believers in the mission. I think it would be very hard to cause a split in the leadership. The question is, Is it difficult to to cause some kind of split, to cause some kind of uprising among the regular members? And there it gets much more interesting. Because there, going back to what I said about foreign fighters versus Iraqis, the foreign fighters are certainly believers. You wouldn't pick up from your country and go join the caliphate uh, uh, unless you really believed in the mission or unless you were in desperate need of adventure. Uh, But many of the people who joined them in Iraq and Syria Really join them either for protection or because they were the strongest force and they were the best option. So the question is: could their foot soldiers, could their mid-level people be convinced that there's another option? And that's certainly a line of effort we should pursue. Now, what that better option is is a really tough call. Um, and again, I wouldn't call some of the other options secular. So we take one of their one of their leading one one of their leading competitors before they took over in 2014, a group called JRTN, J. Shrijal uh, al-Tariq al-Naqshbandi, an Iraqi group, uh, largely Sunni, but Naqshbandi is a Sufi order and not you know what we have the image of the peaceful Sufis. And this is a, a group that wouldn't hesitate to commit all kinds of terrorist acts and be an insurgency as well. Um, so is that obviously better than the Islamic State? Not clear. Now, they were pushed out by Islamic State. They were in league with them somewhat. So so the real option, I think, is among the lower level soldiers, and they need an option. And what's their option? They need an Iraqi government that they feel is not necessarily completely against them, or some kind of devolution of authorities that they feel they can have a decent life uh, uh, without being members of Islamic State. And then the other issue is, is in terms of splits, we need to deal with the Islamic State's very extensive security apparatus. And these guys, the Hizba, the religious police, and the security services really are true believers and will be very brutal. So this almost takes us back to the old efforts of the United States in the 1990s of who can we find to overthrow Saddam, right? Mm-hmm. It's hard, but there may be somebody who can do it.
2: So- so, John, I would, I would say, though, even there's, a, there's an issue here of long-run strategy that goes well beyond this particular threat, right? It goes to the broader ideological movement of which this threat is a particularly noxious realization um, but is only one of many. And I would argue that even if you believe there is a managerial class within the group with which uh, bargaining were possible or that could be split off, there's great long-run value in having the group fail catastrophically and on its own terms. And this is one of, I think, the unrecognized benefits of a containment strategy, or at least of having the group's failure not be obviously attributable to American action. And I think this is best explained by analogy. So if you think about much of the history of the 20th century, anti-government movements around the world were rallied by appeals to economic equality and communist ideals. That was how you organized a rebellion from sometime in the 1890s uh, through around 1989, 1990. And why did it stop in 1989 or 1990? Because you had the obvious and catastrophic failure of that system of organizing society. And so if you think about what you have in the Islamic State, one thing you have that you've never had before is the opportunity for people who are thinking about that ideology to witness the catastrophic failure of a state organized around its principles. And so if the United States steps in aggressively and is in the front of degrading that state, that potential object lesson is lost. And there are long run opportunity costs to that uh, mode of action that I think don't get enough attention in policy debates.
0: Actually, let me sneak in uh, one additional question. Um, is uh, the, uh, is there a sense that um, this is going to go on for a long time? In other words, it's going to be a really slow slogging process from both you, essentially?
2: I mean, so, so, so my, su- my suspicion is that it, it will take uh, a long time, uh, but that the end will be surprisingly fast. right? As with many uh, autocratic regimes, which gradually are hollowed out from within, the extent of the failure and the rot will not, I think, become obvious until the last moments of the regime.
0: Yeah, that happened with the Soviet Union, but it took 40 years. <laughs> is that
1: true? Uh, I, I would add that it would be, even, even with, uh, it will be a slow slogging process, largely because the Islamic State is not the number one target of anybody fighting them. Uh, for the government of Syria, the number one target is non-Islamic state insurgency. For the government of Turkey, the number one target has been the Syrian Kurds who they see as equivalent to the Turkish Kurds who they are in a war with right now. For uh, the government of Iraq, uh, they haven't been capable of taking on the toughest fights. And the toughest fight is is Mosul. It will be Mosul. Um, and the Kurds have no interest in going after Mosul or Raqqa. So, if if we think, and I think almost all of us think that local troops need to be in the lead, this means a sustained process of training Iraqi troops uh, and settling the Syria conflict in some way to lead to an effective fighting force that could go in as 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 a local force and take Mosul. And then we get to the point, will the collapse be instant? You know, I think from what we've seen in other towns, there will be, there will be Islamic State holdouts who will fight to the last man, but there aren't going to be that many of them. And so, you know, we'll be able to take much of Mosul. Uh, Syria is a much harder problem, but then there will be a sustained period of demining and de-booby-trapping and, and dealing with holdovers for probably months, if not years. Well,
0: Those seem to suggest that expansion... ISIS is not very likely. Is, am I correct that In other words, it's going to be deteriorating. It may not be collapsing immediately, but it's unlikely to increase, would you say? I don't,
1: I don't think it will be a smooth deterioration. Uh, they may surprise us. They surprised us with Mosul. They surprised us with Ramadi. Mm-hmm. Uh, Big time. If, so, so first of all, we have, we have surprises um, within Syria and Iraq. And then we really don't know what kind of power or money, and it could go either way. They're getting from their many affiliates. Uh, so I would say you know a long-term decline. But there could be episodic resurgence. Yeah,
0: you agree, Jake? I, I I do. Yeah. Okay, let's open this up. Um, it's hard to see. We we may look beautiful up here, is because we're being blinded by these lights. So, uh, okay, there's a question right down here in the middle. We have. To wait, please wait for the microphone and keep your questions short. And remember, this can be continued over beer and wine. You'd have to be louder or the mic is not working or something. It may be pointed directly at your mouth.
3: The, okay. The problem we're all concerned about, of course, one of them is security at home and in Europe, of course, where it's more risky. It strikes me that a lot of the young men and women who join... You know, really just don't see a point in Western life, you know, because it doesn't offer them anything the way it offers us. And this is kind of like, in some ways, resembles communist rebellion a century ago, to my thinking. that It isn't really about religion, in my mind, even though they pretend it is. That's one take. How how serious do you really think the homeland threat is? Um, one of the things I've noticed is that we haven't the homeland seen... homeland
0: threat to, to the United States, you mean?
3: Yeah, to the United States. We have not seen the catastrophic things that you could see, like dirty bombs or homemade flex, flux devices. That's a localized EMP devices. There are things that are on the YouTube about it that probably wouldn't work, but it seems only a matter of time before somebody tries something like this. Uh, um, we haven't seen that, and it could be extremely disruptive economically if it happened. Um, there's a great deal of indignation out there among people who, think that the people at the top didn't earn what they have, but that sounds more like left wing rhetoric of the past than religious rhetoric. But that's how this all strikes me when I look at it. I just wondered if you could comment on it that religion is a little bit of a ruse here. It just seems like to me it is. For people that join up and join a gang and, you know, blindsided and why they hate us, so Zakaria thing that's coming up and so forth.
2: So so, I mean, I, I'm happy to comment on the, the, the threat to the homeland. I think there are two important things to keep in mind when, you think of, when we think about that. Um, one is, uh, and I think this is the most important thing, that it's not obvious that that's particularly sensitive to what happens in Iraq and Syria. All right, so opinions can differ, but, uh, you know, if you look at um, the, the history going back into the, the uh, you know, the time since al-Qaeda was kicked out of Afghanistan, the attacks that you have seen successfully carried out in the United States, uh, fortunately, you know, uh, really very few, and in Western Europe, they have not required a long logistics tail in some well-controlled piece of territory, right? So if you think about the effect on the probability of an attack going off in any given period in uh, the West, I don't think that probability varies too much with what happens in Iraq and Syria. I think that's the first thing to keep in mind. I think the second thing to keep in mind is something that John's written very effectively about, which is in the panoply of threats to our society, Uh, this is really quite a modest one. And as horrific and terrible as as, uh, some terrorist attacks have been, with the exception of the 9-11 attacks, uh, none of them have been more than a modest, uh, at best, impingement on our society or on the societies of our allies. Right. that's that's an open question right I would argue not but that's a very different discussion I think than the level of than the probability of the threat
0: you're disagreeing with the 77% is he is existential right 77% right?
2: yes absolutely
0: mm-hmm. okay next question see the, over here it's, where's it Mike's uh, the, the man in the blue shirt in the front there
2: okay what would be some strategic game changers that would you know? If you saw a report in the Wall Street Journal tomorrow, you would say, "Okay, this this threat is upgraded. Um, that instead of say a five to twenty year timeline for it to collapse, um, it becomes more indefinite." What would be uh, a couple, yeah, strategic game changers?
1: Hmm. That's a good question. I'll start, and I'd be very curious to hear what Jake says. So, um. I would say one strategic game-changer for me would be some major Islamic State operation in Damascus right? some because they've they've had military success in areas that are largely Sunni or that as Jake said earlier the outside groups don't don't really care much about Now you know they do care about Mosul but the outside groups haven't cared much about Anbar they're caring much more about it now as Iraq tries to hold together but so one is some kind of major operation, in outside of its territory in Damascus. Um, second, is if we saw evidence of real of real cooperation of of some way that the affiliates were strengthening the core or the core was strengthening the affiliates. I don't know what that sign would be, but you know, these affiliates: Libya, Sinai, uh, Afghanistan, Nigeria. They don't seem to be magnifying core, the core power, um, but if somehow we could find evidence that they were magnifying that power, we'd be concerned about that. Um, I do think that, that Europe is at more risk. So, so a major terrorist attack in Europe, I think it's famous last words the minute you say this, you're 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 going to be quoted forever if it happens. I think it's much less likely in the United States, but something bigger than than Paris uh, would be a game changer, to me. the the uh, uh, Iraq Iraq is tough to see um, what what game changers would be. I think we're really in in uh, in a stasis in Iraq, except except, and this does not deal with the Islamic State, the Islamic State moves in where there is an opening to move in. Right now, the biggest concern in Iraq outside of Islamic State is conflict between the Kurds and the Shia militias in, in Diyala and Kirkuk. And if that turned particularly violent into major combat, I think that would be a huge concern also for the opening it might give the Islamic State in Iraq.
0: Yeah, then Aaron, Murray. get back to running out of time, so be, be brief if you can.
4: Yeah. Uh, I wanted to ask um, about a sort of alternative narrative out there, which you alluded to, but I don't think you took much account of. And that's th- seeing this not so much as a traditional organization. It was the kind of the model you used, as sort of an M-style corporation. Uh, but Islamic State is a network and a movement uh, where there is lots of volunteer uh, labor, which aren't on the payrolls you you, uh, you know cost it out um, in many cases are not necessarily being trained but simply inspired with access to internet-based IED uh, recipes etc and h- how do you think about the whole sustainability model if you actually rewrite this not as primarily a you know Middle East based classical organization but actually a you know ever multiplying and multiple concentric circles of, of volunteer uh, terrorists.
0: You mean sort of franchise groups? Yes, exactly.
2: Yeah, I I, I guess my, my response to this comes a little bit from looking a, a lot at a lot of different terrorist organizations over the years. And um, uh, they all look quite normal once you dig into the particular ones. So there's no... There's no group I can think of that's ever produced significant attacks without a great deal of structure um, within the group that's producing the attacks, right? So the the notion that um, people can be uh, cheaply and easily organized to do effective collective action without a lot of uh, overhead and infrastructure, I, I think we've just never really seen that. Whenever you poke at a group that's conducting violence at a significant scale, um, it starts to look a lot like any other group that conducts uh, a collective activity at scale. And it has defined hierarchy, paperwork, record keeping, institutional norms, all the accoutrements of organizing human beings. And you, know, you see this even in like our, our paradigms of network matrix management type groups that, that grow as soon as they start to scale. And as soon as any startup starts to go beyond, you know, five or six people, you instantly start to need structure and organization and you fall out of that kind of networked process. Uh, but there's a critical difference which is the connections between the participants in those organizations depend critically on the ability of participants to form long-running reputations that enable you to structure who gets to make decisions in the code base and whose uh, forks on a particular piece of code will get followed. And as soon as you start to create those long-run reputations that follow an individual over time, you start to create Ways that intelligence and security services can find people. So, the cheapness of communication and of reputation formation in those organizations is like a critical enabler. And I don't think that can exist for a group that is trying to covertly produce anti government violence.
0: I think one more question on the aisle here. My left.
4: Hi, thank you. You mentioned uh, several neighboring countries that are leading the offensive. uh, You talked right into
0: the mic, I think. Yes, excuse me.
4: You, You mentioned several nations and governments that are leading the offensive against ISIS, namely Syria, Iraq, and Turkey. We hear, of course, in the news about the U.S. involvement. I'm just curious, is there any release of public data, or do you have any understanding? If you take a look at all the casualties that have been inflicted within ISIS, the destruction of ISIS infrastructure, the aggregate offensive uh, attacks that are being led against ISIS, what percentage of that would you attribute to U.S. efforts?
2: Oh, I have no, I have no idea if that, those data exist. I mean, surely there are BDA assessments from every attack, but I have no idea if anyone's aggregated that up and tried to come up with an assessment.
1: Yeah, I, I, I have not seen those estimates. Um, I think, given the the low esteem in which body counts are are kept, I'm not sure that data would be released if the U.S. government had it uh, without some kind of FOIA. Um, and even there, it might not come out. I I do know from um, from from conversations with U.S. government, from experience at RAND, that U.S. government is going to strenuous efforts to minimize civilian casualties, recognizing that there will be uh, civilian casualties. Um, but going to efforts, other governments, uh, you know, from what we've seen from, from media reports, Russia and Syria are taking almost no steps to minimize Syria, uh, civilian casualties. Iraq, it's a mixed bag. Um, and Turkey has not been so involved in the fight in Syria as yet, but no data that I know of.
0: Okay, we've run out of time. Uh, Please uh, join me in thanking our participants here. (laughs)